Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. You hear people talk about the challenge of making art all the time, right? Well, how about this? You're locked up in prison. All you have is soap, maybe a bit of newspaper, some hair gel that your buddy buys for you at the commissary, and prison bed sheets. And what you're doing could get you thrown into solitary confinement at any second. Jesse Crimes took that risk. You'll hear how he used the materials of the prison he was in, not just to make stunning art, but also to comment on the system itself. And you'll hear about another unconventional use of materials for visual art. Echo Nimako makes big statement sculptures out of Lego, mostly black Lego. He'll tell you about creating new monuments for young black people. I'm Talia Schlanger sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Jesse Crimes is one of the most compelling visual artists in the world right now. And he made some of his most famous work in a U.S. prison. Jesse served a six-year sentence for a nonviolent drug offense. And during that time, he and his fellow inmates started to create art in secret. So they used things like bedsheets and hair gel and newspapers and smuggled the pieces out one by one through the prison mailroom. Word got out about their secret pipeline of making art. And now that Jesse Crimes is free, he is adjusting to life on the outside, not just as, you know, a person outside of prison, but as a celebrity in the world of art. He's done this big Guggenheim Fellowship. His work's been shown at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. And now there's an MTV documentary that tells Jesse's story. It's called Art and Crimes by Crimes. And it really takes you inside the walls of the prison that Jesse was in. It shows you that art and creativity can exist anywhere, even in solitary confinement. Tom spoke with Jesse Crimes, and that's where their conversation started. I mean, I guess that the best place to start is with congratulations. I mean, it's incredible amounts of success over the past little while. What does it feel like seeing all this work you made sort of secretly in prison? I mean, some of it in solitary confinement finally being viewed out in the open. Yeah, I mean, thank you for having me on. Honestly, I mean, I've, I've been kind of toying away, you know, while incarcerated for a number of years. And so it feels really good. I mean, it feels really empowering to know that this work that was kind of hidden for so long and overlooked for so long is finally getting a chance to speak in the world in ways that I think are changing public narratives and public perceptions. And so that that feels really good. How is it watching a documentary about yourself? Uh, that doesn't feel quite as good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm largely an introvert, uh, as I think most artists are. But at the same time, making that film felt it felt like a responsibility on my part because at the time that the filmmaker Alyssa Niamas approached me I had just come home from prison I was still in a federal halfway house and you know people just weren't having these conversations around mass incarceration in the same way that they are today 
We're, we're going to talk a little bit later um, about some of the artists that you've, you've sort of highlighted over the years and, and, and some of the work you've been doing in that regard. But I'd like to get a little bit of your own story here as much as you're comfortable. So you, you grew up in, in Pennsylvania. You talk about that in the documentary. And you talk about how you spent a lot of time alone while your, your mom was at work. How, how interested were you in art as a kid? I was definitely really interested in it. I was an only child. My mother was 16 when she had me, never met my biological father. And so I, I very much was kind of left to my own devices a lot. And I think I very quickly realized when I was young that kind of creative pursuits or the, the act of making was something that sustained me. I don't think I had any idea of what it actually meant to be an artist, right. <laughs> obviously, but you know, the, I think like the act of making has always been a very prevalent feature in my life. Right. You, you were you were young. You didn't quite know about you know art or the life of an artist or what an artist was, but you knew that you, you enjoyed making kind of something out of nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And then you start you study art in university, right? I did. I did. I ended up going to Millersville University, which is in central Pennsylvania. And shortly after I graduated, I was indicted by the federal government on drug charges. And so they they basically caught me with 140 grams of cocaine, which I immediately took accountability for. And then I entered into the federal prison system straight after graduating from college. <laughs> This was something I didn't I didn't know about and shows my own ignorance that you, you were caught with 140 grams of cocaine. Like you said, you took accountability for that, but you refused to name other names. So they increased the amount they said you had, right? Yeah. So this is like a very common practice in the federal system. You know, I was caught with 140 grams. They were trying to leverage that to get me to cooperate on other people. When I refused to do that, they moved me from the jail that I was in, placed me in solitary confinement in a different jail. They increased my drug weights from 140 grams up to 50 kilos. Oh, and what this ended up doing is it effectively increased my sentencing guideline range from around two and a half years to a mandatory minimum of 20 years to life. And again, this is all kind of pre-sentence and I'm presumably innocent at this point. But you know, they they did all of this as a way to kind of apply prosecutorial pressure to me to get me to cooperate. I just wasn't willing to put my actions off on someone else to get myself out of trouble. Yeah, and so I didn't end up cooperating and just argued the drug weights at sentencing. It must be terrifying that time. Oh yeah, I mean it was it was definitely not an easy decision to make. We're talking about it now in retrospect, looking back on it. But in the moment, uh, being in solitary confinement and seeing your sentencing guideline range going from two and a half years to mandatory minimum of 20 to life, it's definitely a terrifying experience. I very easily could have gotten 20 years. And in fact, there are so many other people that I've come across when I actually went into the federal system who did end up getting that 20, 20 year sentence or more. The judge basically saw potential, right? In you or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So we, we, we argued the drug weights and I was eventually found guilty of 500 grams. So, so we won some of the charges against me in that way, at least in terms of the, the, the weight. I was looking at like a sentence of eight years, 
However, after my supporters and people were able to speak on my behalf, the judge said, basically said this to me where he was like, you know, just earlier today, someone came before me with the exact same offense and criminal history, and I just gave him 22 years. But I see potential in you, and I'm going to give you the largest variance this court has ever handed out. And so he departed downward two years and ended up sentencing me to a six-year federal prison sentence. That other person who got the 22 years was in the holding cell with me prior to me going in. And that person was black. Right. And so it's like, you know, the level of sentencing disparity between white people and black people is just dramatic. While you're in solitary confinement, you're, you're waiting for sentencing. Again, as you mentioned, I mean, it's terrifying. You got no access to sunlight, no fresh air. You do, mm-hmm. however, have like soap and newspaper. And it, it's, it still kind of blows my mind how this came to you. Can, can you describe how you started using those objects to kind of keep your sanity? When I was in solitary, you know, obviously I didn't have access to anything to make uh, metal sculptures, which would be frowned upon in prison. <laughs> And so I I kind of had to dramatically shift my thinking in terms of the work that I was making. Mm. So anyway, I started thinking about like how I could actually use the materials of the prison against itself. And the idea came to me to use prison issued soap because I started thinking about the, the kind of qualities that soap embodies, purification and cleansing, which parallels the supposed correctional nature of prisons and jails and acts of purification and absolution. And so the soap became a very interesting material to me. Then again, I was like reading the newspapers and I very quickly realized that we no longer bring people out into the town square to watch some kind of hanging or public display of um, state control and power as a way to kind of control the population. Yeah, the stocks or something like that. What we do now today is we basically use the newspaper and the media as our form of kind of conveying messages of what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And so if you read the newspaper, you come across narratives and mugshots of people, which are basically little decapitated heads, right? So if you're thinking of like... <laughs> Uh, the guillotine back in the day as a way of controlling the population. Today we use the media and it's still the same thing as like these little heads that are kind of cut off of the body and put in narrative form and basically framed around a person based off of one act that they've committed in their life. And that forms an entire understanding of that person's identity. And it also ends up forming entire societal norms and so I wanted to remove those those images, those mugshots from that narrative source. And I ended up transferring them onto the surface of the soap, which would leave this kind of like fate, almost daguerreotype image on the surface of the soap as a way to kind of remove that from the narrative, the, the stereotypical kind of damaging language in the media and give it this new kind of life and body within the soap. I mean, Jesse, this is a wild project, and I want to emphasize that you're doing all of this illegally in solitary confinement. Eventually, you're transferred to a medium security prison that you describe as very violent, and you're surrounded by gang wars and inmates handing you shanks and and trying to pick a fight. But in the documentary, you also talk about how you found a way to survive all of that aggression. It felt like I was at war. 
I had to get out intact. And I just stayed in the cell and made drawings as a way to disconnect from everything that's going on around me. Over time with making the work, people would come to the cell and want to talk and want to see what I was doing. So they're like, oh, you're an artist. Can you draw? Can you do portraits? So I just did one real quick off of someone's ID, and everyone was really impressed. So, you know, I, then I had tons of people coming to the cell to get portraits and buy portraits. So Jesse Crimes is my guest. I find this part of your story so interesting. You say that offering your services as an artist, specifically offering to draw portraits, helped humanize the other inmates. It got them to drop the the violent, aggressive prison personas. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when you're when you're constantly pigeonholed into this idea that you are somehow other or not a part of society, you begin to put on that prison armor. You begin to wear that as a part of your identity. And so the thing that became very quickly apparent to me is that everyone everybody else that I was incarcerated with was just as terrified as I was. Mm. At the end of the day, we're all people. We all have the same emotions. We experience similar feelings and things. And the interesting thing is that when I started drawing portraits for people, it immediately opened up all these different lines of communication past that persona because everybody, or maybe not everybody, but most people have sons or daughters. Um, Everybody has family members that they love and care about. And when someone commissions you to do a portrait, you often start learning some of these more intimate details around people's lives. And so it it very quickly cut through the tough guy persona when they're talking about their love for their daughter and her favorite teddy bear that they want in the portrait for her, which then allowed me to talk about my son and like how I care about him. That whole like prison persona thing is is just that. it's, It's a performance. Like it's not a real thing. The portraits were just a way to to kind of break through that very quickly and form actual, real, meaningful relationships with people in there. It must it must have been an interesting, I mean, thing to have happen, right? I mean, I know folks were trading you stamps for 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 portraits. It must it must have been there must have been moments where you, um, I mean, I guess how do I put this? Like there must have been moments where you thought to yourself, oh my, you know, like I didn't expect to be here. Not that I didn't expect to be here, but I didn't expect to be here painting or drawing portraits of people. You know, it's it's. <laughs> It's kind of interesting, though, because in the same breath, it's like, I feel like my entire life had just prepared me to go to prison, which is like an unfortunate thing to say. How do you mean? Well, I mean, like, basically, since the age of 13, I've, I've transitioned through nearly every facet of our criminal legal system from juvenile probation and jail to state and then federal prison. And... You know, it just felt like baked into the cake for me. Like this is part of this is part of who I am. Like I am something other. I am not a part of society. And like that had been reinforced in me going through these systems from a very, very young age. So in my in my mind, I was like, yeah, I'm probably gonna end up in prison, dead right. or in prison, like most of my other friends. Right. And so it it wasn't really until I went into prison and experienced all of these other kind of like things that were happening in other people's lives that I actually gained a very different perspective. It helped me shift my personal 
identity from being a outcast or a criminal to being an artist. In federal prison, they were able to take everything from me. Yeah. They removed me from the community. They sent me as far away from my family as they could possibly send me. They, they stripped me of all societal markings. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that they could not take away from me was my ability to create. Mm. So that became such a powerful source of my identity that I could then say to myself, I'm not a criminal, I'm an artist. Like this is so core to who I am. And that 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 shift in thinking just dramatically changed how I view everything. So at this point in the story, you're known in prison as more than a criminal. You're the guy who can draw. And eventually you hook up with a prison art program. This is your friend Jared Owens, who was in that program with you. One day I walked in to go start on one of my paintings and he was sitting there. So we started talking and the conversation went from which prison did you come from? What did they have there? Did they let you have colored pencils? Did you have this? Did you have that? What kind of paint did you have? And I knew a lot of artists he didn't know and he knew a lot that I didn't know. So we would feed off each other. So Jesse Crimes, you're in this prison art program and this is when you start making this masterpiece that makes you famous all around the world. Now, here's the challenge. This is radio, so uh, get ready for this. <laughs> what does Apocalyptine 163890067 look like? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. Um, to start with the overall, the piece is approximately 15 feet tall and 40 feet long. And it's comprised of 39 individual prison bedsheets that are tiled together to create a singular image. Each bedsheet has hundreds of images transferred from newspapers, which I basically used hair gel and a spoon to transfer these, these newsprint images onto the surface of the prison sheets. After the images were transferred onto the surface of the sheet, I would use colored pencils to come back over top of those images, blend them together, and add in other different hand-drawn elements to create a singular image on each sheet. That piece took me approximately three years to make. Upon completing each bedsheet, I would mail out each one upon completion. So I'm basically keeping a running track of this image in my mind and creating it piece by piece without ever seeing the whole thing composed together. And by the way, amazing job. Like incredible, <laughs> incredible job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Describing that for the radio. Um, I, wa I want to play you a, a, a clip of, uh, this is, we were talking about him earlier, Jared Owens, who's another incarcerated artist who's helping you get some of the forbidden material for this project. Uh, take a listen to this. Procurement of all the elements of his piece, it takes an army, you know what I mean? It's not, it's not like out here, you need it, you go get it, you know, and there, getting the sheets, you can go to the hole, getting the, the newspaper is, is a mission. You know, I would go to the commissary and get him styling gel, and they would look at me like, what are you getting styling gel for, you're bald. I love that line so much. Like, what are you getting styling gel for, you're bald? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but. That is factual. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think it's I think it's worth mentioning here, and I, I'd love to hear you talk about this. That like technically you could have made something with canvas and, and paints. 
you were still using objects from your cell and as in a way that, as Jared says, could get you into trouble. I mean, he says there right now, like in there getting the sheets, you can go to the hole. Why was it important to use these materials? For the prison sheets specifically, they are produced in federal prison in a program called Unicor, which basically uses incarcerated labor to produce things like the bed sheets, but also they produce a whole array of other products like apparel for the military and Kevlar vests and office furniture and even solar panels. By altering those sheets and kind of defacing them and transferring the imagery onto them and creating new artwork and sending them out into the world as a, as a finished art piece, it basically opened up the possibility for me to have these conversations about that specific material and how that material then relates to this kind of hidden process of labor, which is basically modern day slave labor, if, if we're just being honest about it. It, it this like hidden workforce of 2.2 million people across the country incentivizes judges and politicians and other people to build new prisons, incarcerate more and more people because you have a confined workforce. The sheets for me allowed me to have all of these conversations in a way that if I was just using a canvas, these conversations wouldn't have opened up. I think it's also worth mentioning for people who don't know when you say, you know, I was mailing I was mailing these out. It, that, that, it wasn't that easy. These, these pieces had to be smuggled out, right? Yeah. And the thing that made the work that I was doing specifically problematic is that it was considered contraband, right? So things that are prison property, you are not allowed to take, deface, destroy, alter, do anything to. Otherwise, you can get what is known as a shot and thrown in solitary confinement. So this is this is manipulating or destroying or drawing on or doing something to the sheets using the using the things of the of the prison. Yes. Yeah, so basically I would get one prison bed sheet, rip it in half. That alone is a problem. And then, you know, drawing over top of it, transferring images over top of it again is like altering prison property that comes with potential time in, in the in solitary confinement. Weren't you, weren't you scared of getting caught? Not really. Um, you know, I, I think the thing that was like very apparent to me is that most of the guards are pretty lazy. They, <laughs> they, they don't really want to do their jobs. And so by the time I got to the prison where Jared Owens and Gilberto Rivera were already at, Jared had been there 10 years. Mm. And he basically was given access to the mail room and all these other things because the guards didn't want to have to check all of the boxes, do all of the things. And so they trusted Jared to kind of oversee most of that. And so I kind of knew that I had a pretty good, pretty secure system working with him. And also, like, I also know that prison guards, like most people in this country, are not trained to read visual language. And so I was also able to kind of like trick them into believing that these prison bedsheets were approved purchases that I made of linen canvas. Mm. I feel like I had a, a, a double-edged sword there that I was able to kind of uh, <laughs> protect myself with. Have you picked your job off the floor yet? I mean, every, every line of Jesse's story is so unbelievable. 
and really just speaks to the value of art, like as a life-changing, life-saving practice. Just unbelievable. There is more of that conversation coming up with Tom Power about Jesse Crimes, who smuggled an epic 40-foot mural out of prison. Okay, jeez. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. Whole lot more Q coming your way in just a bit. Hi, I'm Willa Paskin, the host of Decoder Ring, Slate's podcast about cracking cultural mysteries. On Decoder Ring, we dive down rabbit holes and obsessively explore questions hiding in plain sight. Like, why has slow dancing gone out of style? And when did we all become obsessed with hydration? And where did the word mullet, you know, to describe a hairstyle, come from? That's Decoder Ring, named one of the best podcasts of 2023 by The New York Times. Listen to new episodes every two weeks and make sure to follow us so you never miss one. After so many years of being told that you are not the same as everybody else in society, you're an outcast, you're a criminal, it is like a very prevalent thought, constantly having to push back and tell myself like, no, I I do deserve these things. Jesse Crimes is an artist who spent several years in prison and on probation and navigating the court system. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. You're listening to Q. This is the middle of Tom's conversation with Jesse, who's kind of a legend in his field for smuggling really ambitious artwork out of prison. I'm talking about masterpieces, giant wall-spanning masterpieces made out of bed sheets and hair gel and newspaper. He's telling his story in detail for the first time in a new MTV documentary. It's called Art and Crimes by Crimes. It follows Jesse from his arrest for a nonviolent drug offense all the way to his experience making art in prison and becoming a star, which he is now in the art world. Now, you would think Jesse Crimes would be feeling on top of the world after coming through all of that. But as he told Tom Power, it took a lot of effort to adjust to life on the outside. Jesse, in the documentary, there's a really interesting observation about how if you're an artist, you're considered valuable in prison, but then that changes on the outside. Here is your friend and fellow inmate Gilberto Rivera. That's a commodity. You, you you sell it, you know what I'm saying? So you can eat. You never go hungry. Out here, artists go hungry. Can you talk to me a little bit about that, like about trying to build your career as an artist outside of prison? I think it goes back to in prison, as an artist, you are one of the only people who can provide something physical and tangible for other people to send to their loved ones as a way for them to express their their affection. There's value. You have value there. Yeah, so, so that immediately provides you with significant value and respect amongst the entire population. Alternatively, when, when I came home, you know, artists just in general, minus like a very, very small percentage of artists in, in society, are just not that well supported or respected. Um, you're kind of expected to be a struggling artist, a starving artist. I mean, there's a reason why they say those things. Just the the value systems of of what art means and how it kind of functions in society is very different from what it means and how it functions in in the carceral system. 
And as such, it was very difficult for me to kind of build a life being an artist. I mean, again, when I came first came home, mass incarceration was not a part of the public lexicon the way it is today. Like right. people just were not saying mass incarceration, let alone talking about artists who had been through the prison system. Right. And so when I came home, I was just another artist who had a large gap on my resume and career. But but as you as you build your career, is it how do I say this now? Is it hard to shake the label of of being an incarcerated, a formerly incarcerated artist, a prison artist? It is. And, you know, I, I kind of grapple with this a lot because the organization that uh, me and Russell Craig co-founded called Right of Return USA, we only fund and support people who have been incarcerated, artists who have been incarcerated. We very intentionally want to support a specific population but we also don't want to continue to further have to identify people according to whether they've been incarcerated or not. Right. And so in, in my mind, I, I think about all of this in terms of timing. Classifying yourself as a formerly incarcerated artist or using that as a label separates you from other artists who have not had that experience, which can be beneficial to gain more support because we are in a certain moment where people are trying to actively support these very marginalized uh, populations of people who have been through that system. However, I think over time, ultimately, we all just want to be considered artists. And so in my mind, it's it's a matter of timing and like how we shift language over time to, it doesn't even matter if you're formally incarcerated or not, you're just an artist who happens to have had this experience. But right now, I think it's too early to abandon that yeah. as a framing device because you do need to separate yourself from other artists who have not had that experience. And it's important because many artists who have had that experience lost decades of their life. Yeah. I mean, decades. Other artists who are struggling and marginalized, they've been out here, they've had access to a com computer, they, you know, there are like very basic things that a lot of people that we've worked with have never even had access to. Are there things that you... I mean, because when your career your career takes off, you, you start getting praise from places like the New York Times and the Museum of Modern Art in New York. I heard you say something like you still feel it can still feel like the prison system has its hooks in you. Are, are there things you think about that other artists who have not been incarcerated might take for granted? You know, there's always this very lingering kind of strong feeling that I could lose everything. My level of comfort in being open and vulnerable is something that is still kind of guarded. It's something that I still need to work on. But like there is this kind of constant fear that lingers that everything that you're building and moving towards can be taken away from you. And whether that's like based in reality or not is is kind of not really the point. But it's like, it's something that I'm always thinking about. It's always in the back of my mind. And then also, I think there's like a whole other, there's a whole other kind of thing built into this where it's like, after so many years of being told that you are not the same as everybody else in society or an outcast or a criminal, like it, it plays on, I think, how you think about your identity and self in relation to the world. It is like a very prevalent thought of like constantly having to push back 
and think and tell myself like, no, I I do deserve these things. Mm. We deserve these things. Mm. And we deserve like all of these things at the same level that other that other people have access to them. Does making art help you make peace with what happened to you with that very terrifying experience of being in prison? It does. It does. For me, at least, making art is very much a exploration in self. A lot of the things that I'm grappling with on an individual level, uh, at a collective level, societal level, I typically work through a creative process as a way to understand those things. That has been true since I've been a child. It definitely is something that provides a level of comfort and clarity in terms of vision and thinking and also knowing at my core who I am, what I want, and where where I want to be and where I want other people that I love to be in the future. Yeah, I mean, that, yeah. that reminds me of that thing you say in the doc where you say, like, art helped you focus the anger or, or I think it was the anger or the feelings that you had while you were in prison. Yeah, absolutely. Prior to that, I wasn't processing anger and hurt and trauma and all of the things that I've experienced in the world in a, in a healthy way. By creating the work that I'm creating, it allows me this outlet to process those things in a very health, not only a very healthy way, but also a very productive way. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible story. I mean, not just your own, but the way you, you come out of it advocating for others um, who may not have been as fortunate as you or, or, or others who may find themselves in situations that, that seem like yours um, and maybe who aren't being treated fairly. It's, it's a really tremendous story, and it's a great documentary, and I just want to thank you so much for making the time for us today. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for having me on. Unbelievable. And totally believable. I mean, that's a story. That's Jesse Crimes, an artist who was once incarcerated. He's now an advocate for prison reform uh, and for other incarcerated artists as well. You could learn about him in a new MTV documentary called Art and Crimes by Crimes. It's available uh, now on Paramount Plus. And you just heard his conversation with Tom Power here on Q. When you hear the word Lego, what comes to mind? All those brightly colored pieces you used to make spaceships out of when you were a kid, or maybe if you're a parent, that thing that you stepped on this morning and your foot still kind of hurts. Whatever comes to mind when you hear the word Lego, I'm willing to bet it is nothing like the art of Echo Nimako. He's an artist based in Toronto, but his work's been shown all around the world. He makes these incredible sculptures, things like West African masks or a black horseman on top of a big black unicorn. And the idea is to imagine new monuments for young black people, and he uses mostly black Lego to do it. And as he told Tom Power, Echo is still very much in touch with his own inner child. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Tom? I'm doing very well. Uh, were you one of these kids I was describing that played, played with Lego when he was seven? Oh, absolutely. From, you know, three or four years old right until 13. That was, that was my, my world, you know, that in drawing, but... Yeah, Lego is, is super important to, to my childhood. Can you can you pinpoint why it might have been maybe more meaningful to you than other kids your age? Um, you know, I'm, I, I, it's hard to say sometimes. I think that you, you gravitate towards it um, because of some kind of inner compulsion. It becomes an outlet. 
in fact, speaking of compulsion, I, I also kind of believe that there is some kind of obsessive compulsive thing happening uh, for those of us that really are attracted to uh, the material to Lego and using it and like the kind of clicking motions and how tactile it is. There's something and the order of it as well, because especially as you get older, the organization of your parts becomes really important so that you can access things and you're not spending hours just, you know, sifting through a pile of parts, but you have everything really organized. So there's something to that, the order of like playing Lego. And then on the other side of it, you have the order in terms of organization, but then when you're actually using the material, you have absolute freedom and almost like a lack of order. You just can do whatever you want. Do you think that the fact that you work in the Lego medium might, might cause some people to have some biases towards your work, to not see them as serious or not to see them as art? That, that can exist, I think, when you hear about my work. Because Lego is so iconic, there is something in the collective consciousness that comes to mind when the word Lego comes up. You know, because we've all seen it, we, we all have some kind of point of reference for the word Lego and something comes up in the mind. And then for those of us that have seen large scale type Lego creations, then maybe those kind of things come into the mind. But I think once people engage my work or they see it, that quells a lot of the possible dissent around it not being fine art or something along those lines. On the, on the, on the reverse side, do you think that the fact that, you know, that you're working with, um, again, a medium that as kids is sort of the building blocks of our creativity and you make this very magnificent and this very powerful art out of it, do you think that, that viewers look at your art in, 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 almost in a, in a different way, in more of a positive way, because they can kind of recognize themselves in the work? Um, definitely. I think um, because I, I've used other colors from time to time in my, in my artistic like, palette, but mm-hmm. for the most part, it's my building black work that um, is kind of leading the charge. And within that work, I'm often exploring um, black culture um, and uh, black figurative sculptures and even creatures. So there is something that I think particularly resonates with um, black and racialized people for sure. But at the same time, uh, the artwork can, is regarded by everyone and, you know, the art is for everyone to enjoy and, and to be inspired by and hopefully affect some kind of change too. Well, I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. You know, most Lego sets also come with these sort of mini figurines that I definitely had mm-hmm. as a kid. You know, I had the Stormtrooper right. or I had the, I had the Pirate or, you know, I had the mm-hmm. Chef and stuff like that. And they were uh, yellow characters that you can mm-hmm. dress up. What, what did you think of them as a kid? Uh, well, when I was a child, it, I, it, it didn't really occur to me what I was doing. It was just like, you know, playing with Lego. But when you reflect upon those experiences and that kind of playtime when you're older, and for me, especially as I'm, I'm a culture uh, geek and like sci-fi and, and comics and, and films. And so I was really into that. But I always did notice, even when I was young, that I wasn't seeing myself particularly represented in the things I was playing with, whether it was like G.I. Joe or even Thundercats or something like that, these cartoons and things that I was watching while I was building and playing and the minifigures being yellow, that the fact that the yellow character, whether in Lego universe or even in the Simpsons is code for white. And I don't think that's talked about. It's just like viewed as, you know, it's yellow. So it's, it's neutral or something like that, but that's not the case because all the cultural cues and, are, are there to tell us that it's not actually yellow, it's, it's code for white. And I mean, it becomes evident too when you start bringing racialized characters into that, that, 
that realm. For instance, with Lego there, I think they were yellow up into a particular Star Wars set when Leia and Luke and Han Solo were yellow. But when they brought in Lando, Clarissian character, he was brown. They used like a, a brown minifig. And I think that was the first time it was done. And then the same thing can be seen with the Simpsons where you have them as yellow characters, but then some of the black characters like Homer's friend, Carl, and that judge and whoever else, they're clearly black. So despite the fact that they're presenting as yellow, it's very clearly that they're actually white. And even in, a, I remember an episode of The Simpsons when Homer actually said he was white. And that to me was kind of pivotal because it was the first time I heard them actually acknowledge it. Where it's like, okay, so we know now that yellow is actually white. So it's not a neutral thing, you know? Yeah, I, if you're just tuning in, I mean, I, can, I have so much to say about that, but if you're just tuning in, my name is Tom Power. I'm speaking to Echo Namako, who's turned a toy that might be kicking around your closet into a medium for really like, very powerful works of art. I wonder, I know this is a challenge as we're on the radio, but could you tell me or describe a piece that you're you're proud of and what it looks like? Absolutely. Um, well, one of, I think when asked about my favorite piece or to describe something, I often uh, go back to a piece called Flower Girl. And this piece, it kind of came about without intending to as like the assemblage of one of my daughters, uh, my younger daughter, Jusaria, when, when she was a child. And um, I didn't mean for that to happen because the piece actually was an exploration of ceremonial flower girls. And at that time I got to thinking about enslaved peoples and the fact that they didn't have the agency to have a wedding that would include a ceremonial flower girl that's, mm dressed in like a white dress and looking innocent and pure and, and um, as a beautiful child. So I wanted to create and preserve uh, a black child in that kind of aesthetic. Um, by 2019, when I remade the sculpture, I had been making changes to her over that time. So the sculpture actually evolved and grew over that period of time from like the size of maybe a six-year-old girl to the size of a, a nine-year-old girl with, and her hair grew. So she had small, locks as her hair and they were maybe just above her ear in height and now the locks go all the way down her back so there was something that's the first piece that I've really evolved like that over such a long period of time um, and of course because it was a it kind of connected to me to my children in a way that was also kind of really important about the sculpture so I want to go back to what you said when Lando from Star Wars was was put into um, uh, Lego said he was he was black, and mm-hmm. you know up until that point the Lego characters had all been yellow, which was which was white. You know, um, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it, it, Lego was still going. Lego was still making. Uh, Lego was still a company. Lego was still making new sets, and they they temporarily stopped marketing its police sets in response to the protests around Black Lives Matter. How how significant is that to you? I think it's very significant. Um, you know, I'm a abolitionist, but as far as the police are concerned, I think defunding and, and changing that whole system is, is superiorly important. Um, so to see corporations like the Lego Group take a stand, and I mean, I don't think, I think it's it, there's been a wake-up call definitely that's galvanized people that were previously silent about um, violence against Black people um, and oppression against Black people. And, and um, racialized people in general, indigenous people. And, uh, however, I don't think it's something that's too far from Lego's radar at the same time, because I remember when Greenpeace did a campaign, an amazing campaign um, uh, against Lego for their partnership with Shell Oil Company, um, because fossil fuels are part of the process in terms of making the 
uh, ABS plastic that Lego uses. And um, they, the campaign was successful. They used the, the Lego song from the movie, Everything is Awesome, and made an acoustic version. And it was uh, a lot more um, less exciting and more introspective. And they used a huge Lego set that they designed to show what is happening in, when oil spills in the Arctic and that Shell Oil Company had a role in that. And Lego um, publicly severed ties with the Shell Oil Company and all of the promotion in terms of like the sets that were featuring Indy cars and gas trucks and all of that ended. So it's not so far from Lego's radar being like really conscious. Um, they also have like a huge R&D initiative to actually remove fossil fuels from their plastics over the next 20 years or something. It's a huge endeavor. One of your exhibitions will use over 100,000 black Lego pieces. Is, is, are you in touch with Lego? Does Lego know what you're doing? Are they, are they happy with you? Like, are they proud of that? Your, their their, their, their um, creation has been turned into this great art? Recently, yes. Um, up until this year, actually, I hadn't had really any contact with them. But um, they, I, this year, there were some things that were in the works, um, and the COVID, COVID came in and kind of slowed that down. But um, I've still been in conversation with them, and I think there's some some great things that are that are going to be happening down the line. And they've, you know, they've gone as far as to post a piece I did for my exhibit that showed at the Abercrombie Museum called "Building Black Civilizations" and it explored. Uh, fanta- fantasy, but also drew inspiration from medieval Africa, medieval West Africa in particular. So this city that I built was named Kumisale after a cosmopolitan city in the medieval kingdom of Ghana. Um, and that piece uh, got a lot of attention and Lego went as far as to post it on their official Instagram account. And it kind of blew up my followers and it's it's been really great. So Lego has really stepped up and and um, I'm looking towards the future, and it looks bright. Well, I hope so because you got to be their best customer. <laughs> one of them, you know, <laughs> one of them definitely. There's a lot of people doing a lot of amazing things with with Lego. Not like what I do, mind you, <laughs> but there's definitely people that are that are using parts in like vast quantities. Like there's things out there. Oh, this was made out of a million Lego parts. Like there's there's they're pumping the brick the parts out, and people are using them. Make no mistake. Do Do you ever step on one yourself? Rarely, because of that organization thing, <laughs> my Lego is really, really organized. So there might be a piece hiding in the far corners of my studio, but my floor is often pristine. Um, I'm glad to hear it. It's been lovely to talk to you, and thank you so much for the time. Yeah, thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. A pristine floor of a Lego studio. Love to see it. Okay, Echo Nimako is a visual artist who makes futuristic sculptures entirely out of Legos. And you just heard his conversation with Tom Power. Hey, don't miss Alicia Keys on the show tomorrow. I'm Talia Schlanger, sitting in for Tom Power. I'll see you next time. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.